L-A-S. The LAS Podcast Network is an independent network of local creators based in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. For more, visit LASPodcastNetwork.com. Hello, guys. My name is Devin Green, and this is The Innovative Creative, a podcast dedicated to helping designers and clients better understand design using an alternative way of thought. I've been designing for 16 plus years, and I felt that people need this knowledge. Whether you are a new or an experienced designer, I can give you tips that can better help your design journey. I also know that clients sometimes have a hard time working with designers. This is my way to help clear the confusion. Join me on your favorite podcasting platform as I dive into design tips, communication tactics, and much more. I release episodes every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, on my website at innovativecreative.fm and wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is proudly produced and distributed by the LAS Podcast Network right here in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. The Innovative Creative is free to listen to, but if you want bonus content and to support local creators, subscribe to LAS Plus. For more information on that, head on over to LASPodcastNetwork.com. LAS. All right, all right. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of A Load of BS, the podcast where we talk about all things brand strategy. My name is James. With me today is a very special guest. We have Eric Engelman in the studio today. How are you, Eric? I am good, sir. Thank you for having me here. Oh, absolutely. Thank you very much for agreeing to come here and talk BS with me. So, Eric, um, I've known you for a few years. I I can probably give a semi-decent introduction. Um, I know or I'm fairly certain you founded Geometric. I did. I'm fairly certain you founded Nuboco. I did. You have opened a uh, event venue called the Olympic Southside Theater. I did. What else have you done? Well, that's pretty much all of it. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the big job I have today is running a venture fund. So oh. yeah, it basically was start my own software company, start Nuboco, the nonprofit, uh, and then work with uh, Steve Shriver, a good friend of mine, and I know somebody you know as well, uh, to open the Olympic and now uh, raising and deploying a venture capital fund, which is a, a wow. wild experience. So you live in like Silicon Valley then? Uh, Silicon Valley, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, actually, uh, you know, a lot of what we're doing is trying to look at the things that are working in other communities like Silicon Valley, and uh, but also smaller communities, you know, Kansas City, Omaha, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, and then hey, what, which of those fits for our community that makes sense in our region? So we do we do keep an eye on and have great connections in all of those places, uh, but a lot of it's what does our community need to, to grow and thrive. That's awesome. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to hear some of the challenges of uh, running a venture program here in Iowa, which a lot of people, you know, I joked earlier about you living in Silicon Valley. That's what people think of when they think of, you know, investing lots of money into startups. They think, oh, you must live in California. But you're doing that right here in Iowa, which is awesome. And you mentioned earlier uh, off mic that there's not a lot of other people doing that in this area. Um, so that's re- that's really cool. So as this is a, a podcast about uh, BS, I would love to hear um, when you think of brand or branding, uh, what does that mean to you? You know, uh, I guess I'm not sure this is the academic answer, but, uh, you know, the way I, I guess I would see it is it's what people believe about you. Um, whether you've told them that or not. Uh, so it's, it's more of a, uh, an abstract thing. Um, it is, 
you know, you maybe refer to things like logos or, you know, uh, taglines as your brand assets, but really they're, that's not your brand. It's much more about, you know, what people believe about you. I like that. Um, how do you get people to believe what you want them to believe about you? You know, uh, <laughs> that is, uh, that is the trick to the whole thing. Uh, you know, I, uh, uh, maybe Nuboco is a, a good example um, there that would maybe help illustrate. But uh, you are communicating things uh, in every interaction at every touch point you have with a potential customer um, or a potential, uh, in that case, volunteer or uh, mentor or any of the other ways that we we talk to people, touch people, communicate with people. And, you know, the ability to be intentional about what you're saying, writing, and doing and how you act in all of those cases is what builds that that belief about you. So uh, Nuboco, as uh, as you know, is a is a, a nonprofit that covers a really wide territory from little kids and code through uh, adults learning to to become software developers to working with startups uh, to corporate innovators inside big companies. It's you know kind of all over the place and, and more than that. And so you know we've we've worked really hard, I think, to build a, a belief around that um, in the community. And so we, we think about that, I think, in in almost every interaction, whether it's explicitly stated or not uh, in our meetings when we talk about it, like that's what we're trying to trying to do, because what people believe about a nonprofit affects whether they give money to it, whether they yep. want to go to a code school, whether they want their startup to be a part of the programs there. Uh, it all comes down to what people believe about you. Absolutely. One of our uh, podcast episodes, we talked about naming your business and your brand. Um, you named your nonprofit Nuboco. Uh, can you explain where that name came from? Uh, so originally it wasn't. Uh, when we started it in August of 2014, the sort of flagship program was Iowa Startup Accelerator. And so when we, we originally named it, it was Iowa Startup Accelerator, Inc. Um, it was a nonprofit. And uh uh, just for even for that, you can tell how creative I am with naming things. It was, uh, you know, Iowa Startup Accelerator. Uh, it was the first program of its kind in the state, so we sort of felt like that was an appropriate name, even yeah. if it was, um, you know, kind of uh, simple in, mm -hmm. its, in its naming. But as the programming, as we started to realize, you know, if we really want to support these founders, the, the resources they need is more than just that accelerator. It might be helping them find technical talent or, uh, you know, connect them with resources or build a prototyping lab and co-working spaces and these other other components. We're like, you know, Iowa Startup Accelerator as an entity name doesn't really even reflect the the promise that we've made to people, the the, the sort of beliefs we want them to have about us. Uh, and uh, actually some of our original founders, uh, I don't know if you've met Andy Stoll or Amanda West, uh, but they were some of the, the two heavy influencers that got me into this whole career path uh, and were originally part of the founding team for it. Um, they, they helped us come up with a couple of name options and they had actually previously uh, were talking about using the name New Bohemian Innovation Collaborative uh, for one of the other uh, things they were working on back in, uh, you know, 2012, I think, in that range. And they'd had it on a shelf. They didn't have a logo on a shelf, had a little mm -hmm. lightning bolt, and it was sort of like this neighborhood, Nubo, uh, if for those of you who aren't from Cedar Rapids or don't know about it, it's uh, sort of a, uh, a hip new neighborhood in, in the community mm -hmm. uh, where a lot of focus right now on, uh, you know, new companies and, uh, you know, people building things. We have the Nubo City Market, for example. So, yeah, New Bohemia as a neighborhood in Cedar Rapids gets shortened to Nubo. And so New Bohemian Innovation Collaborative was sort of a, a mouthful. <laughs> um, but uh, 
you know, we shortened it to Nubo Co. when we talk about it. But we chose it because we thought, hey, we're, we're sort of springing forth from this neighborhood that after a flood, um, you know, it was, it was basically destroyed mm-hmm. in the flood um, and then, uh, you know, damaged in the 2016 partial flood. Yeah. Uh, and so we thought, you know, hearkening back to that story and that, that those roots was, was an important part of how we wanted to do it. Uh, and then Innovation and Collaborative, New, Bo- New Bohemian Innovation Collaborative, kind of built out to say, this is an organization that's ultimately about creating new things. It's innovative. And we're trying to do it in a way that's generally collaborative because we can't do it all by ourselves. And so that name just struck. I think we had three or four options we looked at and we thought, you know, it's kind of a mouthful, but uh, it reflects what we're trying to do because what we're trying to do is audacious and wide and complicated. So having a complicated name worked worked well for, I think, what we wanted. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I can't I can't judge you for for naming your business so so obvious the first time because the first business I ever owned was called Cedar Rapids Web Design, um, <laughs> and I paid like four hundred dollars for that domain name. Um, but uh, and and so it sounds like after a little while you um, realized you needed a, a bit of a rebrand, maybe not a full rebrand, but um, at least a, a new name. Um, and how how long were you uh, how long were you ISA Ventures before you switched to Nubico? Uh, we were Iowa Startup Accelerator. Right, uh, I want to say maybe two years, and okay. maybe not even that long, um, because it didn't take long before the programming started to proliferate, and we realized you know, this doesn't quite fit anymore. Yeah, what was that like um, going through that rebrand, changing your name? I'm sure you had marketing materials that, and all sorts of things that you needed to think about. Yeah, you know, I think the good thing was uh, because the organization was pretty pretty young. Um, you know, it wasn't like we had to rip off some monster sign off the side of a building or something. Yeah. It was, yeah, we need to change business cards. You know, buy a domains or, uh, you know, plug in emails and and things like that. And yeah, we had some like poster banners and things. Uh, but because we, what we ended up doing, as you know, was uh, Nuboco kind of became the umbrella brand, and Iowa Startup Accelerator still exists. Mm-hmm. And so, like, we didn't have to scrap it. We kept that as one of many programs that Nuboco operates. Uh, so it just sort of uh, maybe shuffled the deck a little bit. It wasn't an expensive undertaking, and in fact, I think it went reasonably fast. Once we'd selected it, it was it was pretty straightforward to mm-hmm. to change over. Uh, the the big thing though was communicating what the heck it was to people, um, and I would say that took us. A long time, uh, several yeah. years, because we we were known as the startup kind of people. Like that was our our role in the community was to foster startups. And then we're talking about little kids in school learning computer science. Like, wait, I don't see the connection there. Why is this? Why do these things all fit under this umbrella? Uh, so, you know, it, it it took a long time, I think, for us to figure out what was it we wanted people to believe about what we were doing. Mm-hmm. So. So within the umbrella of Nubico, you have um, the Iowa Startup Accelerator still. You have Delta V Code School. Um, there's the Vault Coworking. There's um, the Code for Kids, which I think used to be uh, Imagination Iowa. I think that's been renamed. So you have all these different brands that are underneath the umbrella. When you're – I don't know you're, you're not with Nubico anymore, but were, were your marketing efforts – how often did you try to tell people about Nubico? versus telling people about the specific brands within Nuboco. That was a that was a, a frequent conversation uh, maybe four or five years ago as we we talked about it. So yeah, we had built this relationship or this brand aura in the community with people around startups. That's how it all began. And um, as that started to change, we realized 
you know, not only does the name need to change, but how we communicate about what we're doing needs to change. Because what we saw when we when we started the accelerator program, honestly, its purpose was to jolt this community into believing that interesting things could happen here. Mm-hmm. Uh, like honestly, that's what it was about. It was, hey, we're going to find some startups, and the people from Israel and Australia are going to come to Iowa to help get their business started, which sounded preposterous in 2013, <laughs> sure. and yet it, it very much worked. Uh, you know, there were definitely some lessons learned, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, this community didn't believe that. And that first year, we had our launch day event uh, in. Uh, in fall of 2014, had some eight or 900 people at the Doubletree and, you know, shining lights and LED screens. It was, it was incredible. And I think people were just like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's happening in my community. So we kind of built this sort of vibe of like, all right, these are kind of aggressive people working with startups. Uh, and that's what people believed about us. And then as sort of the, the mission evolved, it's like, well, yeah, Nuboco is aggressive and yeah, Nuboco works with startups, but you know, these, these, computer science in schools problem and, you know, adults learning to code and, you know, Entrefest and uh, as an event to bring people together to talk about innovation and entrepreneurship. Like this sort of message needed to change. And and we sort of settled on, we settled on the name before I think we settled on maybe the implication of what we wanted people to believe about the brand. Mm-hmm. And that evolved over, I would say over, uh, you know, the next three years or so into we're trying to make this state more resilient to change, to adapt to, to new technologies, to new new ways of working, new kinds of cultural ways of running and operating businesses, whether they're startups or old businesses. And we're here to try to help this state save itself. Um, you know, I think we're we're well behind, you know, a lot of other states in terms of, you know, uh, company cultures and, you know, startup activity and certainly venture capital activity. Um, and, you know, we wanted to close that gap. So, it moved from this kind of narrow mission, really focused on the community that we, we, we are in, to a broader mission uh, that's much more about resilience or, you know, the ability to take advantage of the, the changes in the world so that Iowa is better off than it was before. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's awesome. Um, and I think it's working. Um, I've been uh, aware of Nubico for probably four or so years now. Um, and I've watched uh, some of their programs grow, like Delta V and, and things like that. Um, and, I mean, they really are working. Uh, the success story after success story of people with no experience in coding, for example, going through Delta V for five months and coming out and, and getting junior developer jobs, you know, pretty much right, right off the bat. Um, kids learning to code. A lot of really cool stuff happening there. Um, so let's, let's talk about, uh, we talked about uh, Iowa Startup Accelerator. Let's talk about ISA Ventures. What is that and how did you become involved with that? Yeah, uh, so, you know, when we started the Accelerator in 2014, um, we had talked with some uh, investors in the community and they'd never, nobody in Iowa had ever seen an Accelerator program before. There wasn't anything in the state. So uh, I I pretty much met with some basically rich people and said, hey, I have this experiment. I'm going to copy this thing that I've, I've, I'm modeling after some stuff I found in Boulder, uh, some stuff in Lincoln, some stuff in Omaha, a few other communities, Kansas City, uh, and even some overseas. I visited a program in, uh, in London, for example, just to kind of get a sense of how different it was. We joined a network of accelerators uh, called Global Accelerator Network, for example, to share ideas. And I said, hey, I'm going to launch one of these in our, in, in our community. Would you invest some money in either funding the operations of it or as a capital source that we can seed these early stage companies um, with a little bit of money. It's not a big number um, because it was aimed at very, very early stage. The 
almost idea stage companies or, you know, nearly after at the time. Anyway, uh, so we had this little fund, uh, but like there wasn't, nobody worked there. It was $1.7 million, which at the time was a huge number. In retrospect, it's adorable um, <laughs> of what we were trying to do, but it, that was the capital source that sort of sat on the side. And we, you know, we created a, it was very much a for-profit entity. Um, so we had to do some, some, you know, careful setup of how those pieces all worked legally and with our board. Uh, but the idea was that could invest in those companies. So over the, the, five and a half years from 2014 to, you know, late 19, we invested that 1.7 million in 41 companies, typically, you know, 20, $50,000 check sizes, pretty small. And again, very, very early, very extraordinarily high risk. Um, and, and the reason we had to do that was because that was the hardest place for people to find capital. It's hard in Iowa at probably all stages compared to other communities, but mm -hmm. uh, we felt like uh, this was the place to start to sort of fill the top of the funnel, so to speak, with, with startups. Anyway, uh, so, you know, that was going alongside, it had a name, it was uh, ISA Fund, uh, which, you know, isn't very exciting. <laughs> and we never talked about it because it wasn't, it didn't have its own team, it didn't have a brand, it was just a piece of Iowa Startup Accelerator. Mm -hmm. When we got through that, I had gone out to a lot of the investors and said, hey, here's what we learned. Some things went really well. Some things, yeah, we, we made some mistakes and we learned some things. And, uh, you know, strategically as an investor, I've, I've learned a lot and I think we should go much bigger. Uh, some of the investors agreed with me um, uh, and said, hey, I'll help you. I'll help you make this real. We should go for 20 to 30 million, um, which was great because I was picturing five in my head <laughs> and thought that would be a huge leap. Uh, and it, it uh, but as part of that, it, it caused us to really rethink the relative weight of the brand names that went with them. It was like, this can't be a quiet thing on the side. Uh, we need people to know that there are, is capital available um, if we're going to go raise uh, basically what became a micro venture fund. We talked about a couple of different names uh, and we, we had originally we were thinking maybe something very, way off on its own. It would sort of be its own entity. But, you know, our value proposition from ISA Ventures today is, right, we're a capital source. We can write you a check. But in Iowa, the ecosystem has holes all over it, um, weaknesses all over it. And if we were just writing checks, that doesn't really solve a problem for entrepreneurs on its own. We wanted to be tightly tied to the resources that Nuboco had built over the last seven years. And so uh, that's that's kind of how it came to be ISA Ventures is like we wanted it specifically to reflect the fact that, you know, if you take a check from us, there are some resources that are going to be available to you. Sometimes they're required as part of the deal. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're optional, mostly optional. But, uh, you know, these resources are there for you because we want to help you be successful in building your business in Iowa. The other other piece of the name, though, that was important uh, that it's called ISA and Iowa Startup Accelerator Ventures, is uh, we only invest in Iowa companies uh, today. Our fund today is is uh, has special tax treatment, uh, but it was all because of it. But it's also because of the way that we invest in the whole whole purpose was you know I, just investing in startups. You don't you don't need me for that. You can go on the internet on AngelList and just pick stuff out and invest in it. Mm -hmm. Good luck, have fun. Um, but if you want to invest in things in the state of Iowa that you know create wealth here, that create jobs here, that improves the sort of stock of talent that we have as people learn how to build fast growing companies and then, you know, leave and start another one or join another one. Like that's what we're trying to do ultimately is make a lot of money for our investors while improving our community. So ISA Ventures just kind of fit for us. Yeah, that's awesome. Hearing, hearing your story reminds me a little bit, um, you know, trying to start a, a venture capital fund in Iowa feels a little bit like Ben and Jerry starting their ice cream shop up in 
wherever they were, northern Wisconsin or something, where it was really cold. And people are like, why would you open an ice cream shop here? That's never going to work. Obviously, it worked out very well for Ben and & Jerry. And, it, and from what I can see, um, things are working out pretty well for ISA Ventures. Do you have um, any success stories you'd like to, to share? Yes, but before we do that, I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about that uh, because the ability to raise the venture fund that we raised wouldn't have happened if we hadn't taken that first adorable step with the 1.7. You know, and I, I because I think people didn't know what to believe. Yeah. Um, you know, they weren't like, well, Eastern Iowa isn't, there's no startups here, there's nothing interesting here. And so part of what we were doing with the accelerator program in that first one was just drawing attention to the fact that actually there are cool things happening here and, and they're working well. Uh, so the, the, the second fund, this 20, will be about a $22 million fund when we're done here momentarily. You know, that, that is only possible because of the, uh, I think, the work that we did before. And if we just went and said, we're going to raise a venture fund, I don't think anybody would believe it. But yeah. I had this built this network over those five, six years that we, we had done that. Uh, and you know, and that brings, I think, some some good examples of companies that you know really have been built during that time period. I I look back over the you know from August of 2014 uh, to 2019, that first fund, like we were the purpose of that again was the top of the funnel, the earliest stage companies. And I remember talking to some of the investors because when you invest at that stage, that's a long term game. Mm -hmm. You know, these are not companies that are likely to sell in two years and you make you know three, five, ten x on your money and. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way in most cases. We were investing extraordinarily early. These are, it takes a longer bake time. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, as we, we seeded a bunch of those companies, uh, you know, we invested in a company called Rentizo. Uh, you're probably familiar yeah. with Mike Ott and his company in Iowa City. Mike was, uh, Mike, Mike is a good friend, but he also helped me design the accelerator in 2013. And then, you know, it was about 2017, 2018. He, he kind of got the bug to quit his job and say, you know, I'm going to go start a company. I've got an idea that I, I kind of want to work with. And, uh, you know, we invested a little bit in his his company early on. And then uh, by the time, you know, that fund was done and we were on to this next one, he said he, he was making great strides. And uh, our second fund invested in him, too. Nice. And he landed millions from investors, uh, including some big corporate investors that are, you know, really strategically important to his business. Uh, and so I look at that as an example of you know, seeding early stage companies. Mike was an easy bet for me. I would bet on Mike regardless of what the idea was. He's just a smart, a smart person mm -hmm. um, that, you know, you want to back. And, you know, he had a lot of experience uh, to bring to bear yeah. on that, for example. That's really cool. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's probably five or 10 that, uh, you know, I think are sort of the the good examples of companies around here. Um, and, uh, you know, they're all over the eastern half of the state, the ones that we've mostly, mostly connected with. And uh, so I think big picture, I feel like the overall strategy is working. Uh, I should say, though, that, you know, a lot of the reason it's working is a lot of other things have happened at the same time. So it's not like, yeah. uh, you know, what just what Nuboco and ISA Ventures have done is, is the reason for that. You know, uh, just had uh, went out to the uh, Papa John celebration in Des Moines. We're kind of looking back on 25 years of after he initially seeded some of the programs that now exist that I honestly people take for granted. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it laid a lot of groundwork around the state, too. And a lot of other people have, have contributed to just making it easier for founders to get started uh, in this region. Yeah. Yeah, that's you know, one of the things that, that comes up all the time when you're talking about uh, brand strategy, marketing strategy, um, is trying to stand out, finding something, you know, obviously you're not the only venture capital fund in the country. 
Uh, but, and, I, and I'm not super familiar with that whole industry, but would you say that the fact that, um, you know, you have the Iowa Startup Accelerator where you said that you're writing twenty to $50,000 checks, pretty small checks for people in very early stage. Um, and then there's ISA Ventures, which could potentially invest a million plus dollars in, in their business. Are there other options out there that way where there's almost kind of a, a, a path where you can say, you know what, you can start here. Um, we'll write you a small check and get started. You can learn some stuff. You can get some customers. And then if things go well, maybe, you know, you get another million from ISA Ventures. Is that something that helps you kind of stand out from from other similar very much so. Uh, you know, most most venture funds, you know, in Iowa, there's really a, maybe a, a single digits number of venture funds, uh, and two of them, us and a group out of Des Moines called Next Level Ventures, that we mm-hmm. work pretty closely with. We are both in that same sort of tax situation where we both only invest in Iowa-based companies. So most commonly, if you're an Iowa-based company, you're talking to one or both of us. There's a few others that will invest in Iowa and around Iowa, and there are venture. You can get capital from anywhere. Capital's yeah. you know uh, liquid. It's easy to you know, find people who could give you money. Um, but I feel like, you know, what we've tried to do is to to set apart the way that we work with founders and say, we'll work with you at the earliest stage. When most venture funds would say, you're too early. That's the most common response founders get when they talk to a VC is, yep, that's great. Keep us on your list. You're too early. Uh, you know, we and we can say, well, you're too early for a million dollars, but maybe not for 25 or 75 or 100,000 or something like that. Uh, let's see what you can do. And you join our program here, we'll invest some money in you uh, and we'll see what you can do. And if you can continue, we can invest a quarter of a million, 500, a million, whatever it needs to be um, over time. Now that that model, we're only a year into this new fund, but mm-hmm. we've had it at least three so far where we've done multiple investments in sequence as we've observed progress that meets sort of the threshold for us. Um, and, and that approach is, I think, very different. And, you know, I, I would say we, we definitely have established that that's what we're trying to do. But nobody in Iowa, m- most founders in Iowa don't know deeply how venture works anyway, much less why we're different than uh, most funds that don't do investing um, at that earliest stage and continue to invest over time. So I think we're still working to crack that code of how to tell that story in the right way so that those founders do believe that. Yeah. But I will say when we've met with founders and we have the opportunity to kind of talk through how we work, I think they like that. I think they prefer an investor that is set up both from, it's both the capital kind of goes with you, the check sizes, but also the programming, like the mm-hmm. accelerator that the nonprofit operates is changing to match that over time um, to provide the resources that founders need much further along. That's awesome. Have you ever thought about the fact during your time at, at Nuboco and now with ISA Ventures that you, you're obviously were building a brand for Nuboco, but after hearing you talk, it, it feels like you're kind of building a brand for Iowa, which is kind of, you know, no pressure. Um, it, it feels like, I, I think there's probably a lot of non-Iowans out there who have a different opinion about Iowa because of the things that you and Nuboco and ISA Ventures are doing. Do you do you think about that? Does that keep you up at night? Um, well, it, it, I'm not, I don't work there anymore, but I am the board chairman, so maybe it should keep me up at night. <laughs> but uh, no, you know, I think uh, we set out a long time ago to, with, with the somewhat audacious thought that, you know, we're going to change the world, but it's going to start small, and it's stuff that compounds year over year, and so much so that you probably won't even notice it in one single year. But when you kind of look back, um, 
it, it is pretty remarkable. And, you know, we have people come from all over the country to come see what we're doing. We're, there's a bunch of examples. There's a group in, uh, in the Dakotas that's doing uh, similar work, for example. Um, and I believe they've got like 18 or 20 employees. Uh, Nubico's 26 right now, I think. Uh, so similar kind of arc. And so there's sort of this grouping of, of entities that have formed about the same time with similar kinds of visions. And, and we've shared some information with each other. Um, and people do want to understand, um, both from elsewhere around the state of Iowa, but also outside the borders. But no, it doesn't keep me awake at night. Um, you know, we, we try to make an impact where we can, I think. And uh, I think we're pretty good at making that impact. But, you know, we all we know where the weaknesses are. Mm-hmm. Um, we know where all the problems are. And we know we're trying to fix all of those and grow uh, to make a bigger impact. So yeah. that that's, that's plenty of focus to keep us busy. As a person who has started several businesses yourself, um, and someone who has worked with many, many people who have started a business, um, you've probably seen a lot of people make really good branding decisions. You've probably also seen some people make some poor branding decisions. What advice would you have for somebody who is thinking of, you know, doing what uh, Rantizo uh, Mike mm-hmm. did, quit their job and start a business? Um, what advice do you have for, for that person regarding building a brand from scratch? So I'm going to sort of give you two different, uh, maybe opposing perspectives. Uh, on the one hand, I would say, don't worry about it. Uh, if you solve the customer's problem really, really well, like that establishes the brand you want anyway, right? Because people who yep. have their problem solved are going to talk about how great it is. You know, in Mike's case, uh, you know, farmers who have the ability to, deal with uh, spot herbicide issues on a farm field, they're going to talk to their friends and say, wow, you guys should, you know, use this service that provides, you know, drone-based delivery of pesticides and herbicides or whatever. Uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, the brand somewhat builds itself. Uh, and so for most founders, I think the, uh, the brand comes from the work that you do and the customers that are interacting with you on the one hand. So it's mm-hmm. like, don't worry about it. Just do the work, make your customers happy. Um, but the other side is, you know, as the company gets its footing, you know, as it as it gets, you know, the point where maybe survival isn't the issue anymore and it's okay, we've 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 made some progress and now we can, you know, stop and think for a minute. The ability to go back and contemplate what kinds of interactions you should have with customers, whether that's electronic communications or phone calls or in person meetings and visits or they might receive something with your name on it, being really intentional about what you want them to believe. Um, this is uh, maybe a little bit of an older story, but you know, in, in Geonetrics history, the company that I started in 1999, um, you know, we we wanted that brand aura to be extraordinarily high touch, right? It was we were the most expensive vendor in the space. We were basically building complicated websites for hospitals, uh, and we're like, well, if people are going to pay a premium, we want to be we want to be there for them. And so that brand took on, uh, you know, we I think we started to care about it more than just the logo and some of the other fundamentals uh, once we kind of realized what our brand promise really looked like, what our what message we wanted to send to the marketplace. And so we would do things like uh, we'd have days where we would all write handwritten thank you notes to our clients, mm-hmm. um, the sort of primary people responsible. And I, as the CEO, would do that sometimes as well. Uh, and we would, uh, uh, I remember a story where one of the uh, our hospital employees was going to go on maternity leave. And, you know, she was kind of a, a one-woman show at that hospital. And uh, Geonetric basically put together a thing that said, 
you just go on maternity leave. We'll take care of everything for you. We'll sort of fill in for you for, you know, 90 days or whatever mm -hmm. you need. Uh, and like, that was kind of unheard of. You know, usually it was the hospital, like they would scurry their staff around to try to find somebody to yeah. cover their role. And we're like, we're your vendor, but we'll just take care of that for you. Um, you pay us a little more, but we'll take care of it. So, you know, there were, there were things that once the company got up and running that we were really intentional about setting that out because, well, I don't think in that example, like we wanted the story, like that it was, well, we'll do this because we want a story we can tell mm -hmm. other people. But boy, did we tell that story, oh, yeah. you know, in sales presentations to the, you know, person who had to make this decision, the idea that there's a vendor that you don't, you know, there's no help desk, you call where you're, you know, get a ticket to, to solve your problem. Like you have a person, you call them and they'll even step in for you while you're on maternity leave was, you know, an incredible story and a very mm -hmm. big differentiator for us. So to answer your question, on the one hand, do the work, the work speaks for itself, the work builds the, the brand. But like once you've maybe got the business up and running, I think you can be really intentional about what you want that to be. There's probably not too early of a time mm -hmm. to begin thinking about that, but I think you can also waste a lot of time imagining what you think the brand should be when nobody's paying you to solve their problem. And that that's just a death sentence. Like, don't don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah, definitely don't feel like you have to go out and, and uh, you know, pay somebody 50 grand to help you build a brand, you know, right. on day one. Um, and the, I mean, unless you, if you got the startup funding, you know, I won't tell you not to do that, but it's probably, like you said, a, a waste of money. Yeah. Um, and a, a lot of people, I, I like how you said that the brand sort of naturally builds itself. I think a lot of times that's true for some people it's harder, but, uh, one great example I have, you mentioned Steve Shriver earlier. So he has a business uh, called Ecolips. And I, I use his business a lot when I'm talking about uh, brand because he's done, he and his wife, Andrea, have done such a great job building that brand, among others. Um, but when you look at Ecolips, you look at their website, their social media, it becomes very clear what they're about. This company cares very much about um, the environment, about being sustainable, and, and um, that comes naturally out of Steve and Andrea's desires to do the same. And so for them, it's not as hard um, to to build that brand because they're basically just pouring themselves into their business and letting and just letting it show. I, they Ecolips recently bought a brand called Bug Soother, which is an all natural bug repellent. Again, their whole thing is we're all natural. You know, it's it's safe for your skin. You know, DEET is not exactly the greatest chemical to, to put on your skin. Things like that. It's all natural. It's great for you. It's good for the environment. Things like that. And that's kind of their brand. And then I saw at Menards, there's some other brand of, of uh, uh, bug repellent that had both right next to each other. They had an all-natural bug repellent, and then they had like a traditional bug repellent with DEET in it. And I remember thinking like, you know, that's certainly one strategy, trying to appeal to everybody. Um, but, you know, when I look at that company, I'm like, what is this company about? Clearly, they're just about making money. And that kind of turns me off a little bit. I understand that business is about making money. And if your business isn't profitable, you're not helping anybody. But when I when it's clear that you're just out there and that is your only focus is to make money and you're trying to sell something to every single person on the planet, okay. But when I look at Bug Soother and I see that they actually have like a mission and a goal, um, I prefer that company. And I will buy that bug repellent over this other company's natural bug repellent. Even if I, if I didn't look at the ingredients, if they're the exact same product. I would still buy from Bug Soother because they they actually have a mission that you know that I can resonate with. Whereas these other guys are just trying to make a buck. Um, I 
Oh, do you have some? Yeah, yeah. Like you know, I think it's interesting. You know, the if you have the ability, I think, with a product uh, that as as the founder or as the leader of that organization to decide what the brand stands for and what it means that you want people to believe about about the brand. But there, uh, there's a piece of that that can just be a, a moral perspective, right? Maybe it is, you know, it's Patagonia, um, you know, we want to save the planet, mm -hmm. as an example, maybe something like that, or, or Ben and Jerry's, right? They wanted social change, and we'll use, use our business to get that social change. But at the end of the day, it's also a way to segment your customers and to decide who the target customer really is. And so if you don't have a, a brand that speaks to people, then it is aimed at anyone and no one. And, you know, it makes it a lot harder, I think, to sell, to mm -hmm. sell the product. So I think, I think the, the sort of implication of that is, is that it can be way more profitable to have a brand that targets a specific audience and solves their problem in a way that they want it to be solved in bug soothers case. It might be people that are concerned about, you know, chemicals and the effect on their body or, or their health or whatever. Um, but I'm guessing it's also highly profitable for bugs through there. So it can be both about the money, but the ability to bring forth, uh, you know, a, a brand promise that isn't about the money, that there's more to it here. There's something underneath it that's valuable, mm -hmm. um, is part of the, the genius of the whole thing. Agreed. Absolutely. And I think you can charge more for that mm -hmm. and cause people, this sounds callous, but people will pay it if they, if they know that their money is going towards more than just a bottle of bug repellent, but it's actually you know, going towards helping the the planet, um, you can charge more for that and people will happily pay it and they'll happily come back and pay you more and be loyal customers. Um, that's one of the things that I think branding, one of the biggest benefits to putting some emphasis on your brand is that helps you um, not just get new customers. That's marketing and advertisement will get you new customers. Your brand will help you keep those customers and turn them into loyal customers. Um, I did remember my question earlier. We've talked a lot about um, your brand and how you touch customers and how you interact with customers. Um, what would you say uh, to somebody who's starting a company about the internal communications, the communications they're having with their employees and their contractors? Um, how important is it to keep your brand in mind when you're hiring people um, and when you're training people and, and interacting with your own employees? So... You know, the, the sort of picture, I guess, I, I think should be in mind here is a, a shish kebab. You okay. have the, you know, the, the stick that goes through the middle of everything. That, mm -hmm. That's kind of like your brand. And, yep, some of those are your customers, your employees, your investors, whatever. Like you have some authentically true piece that you want people to believe about you. And if you speak it very differently to employees than you do your customers, most likely you're going to lose that fidelity in whatever ways your employees are communicating to your customers, right? They... If you really truly want that brand to to flow through everything, it really has to kind of permeate your know, communications and the way you lead and the way you talk to people inside the company. What you reward, the behavior that you reward, choose to reward or to punish, you mm -hmm. know, as the case may be. So, for example, uh, you know, and I'm sure you've heard the stories of of Zappos, and you know, they'll let you uh, bring that up. Yeah, yeah, return anything, and you know, be mm -hmm. on the phone with people for an hour or whatever, or many hours. As I've the case tested may that, be. and they will just sit there and talk to you about nothing. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I have not, I've not <laughs> tested it, but I totally believe it. You know, the the ability for a business to reward that behavior in that example, I think, has shown shown it shown it to be accurate. Uh, certainly, Nordstrom, I think, has that has had that reputation, mm -hmm. and and arguably still does. I think the story was. Something like, if they roll a tire into this store, I don't care. You'll accept it and return their money. 
right? Mm -hmm. Even though they don't sell tires. Uh, so kind of a predecessor, I guess, to, to Zappos maybe in, uh, in how that worked. But, you know, that, that ability to build a culture and a team that authentically, hopefully authentically believes in the same brand promise that you want your customers to believe makes it a lot easier for them to amplify and reflect the, that that promise into the marketplace, whether it be on phone calls or in-person interactions or emails or whatever mm -hmm. it may be. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. But Zappos is such a fascinating story. Um, I read Tony, the late Tony Shea's book. I think it was his autobiography. I forget the name, but it was a fantastic book. It was all about him. and uh, But then obviously it got into Zappos. He was an early investor in Zappos and he kept pouring money into it and it wasn't really going anywhere. And finally he said, all right, I'll fund you one more time but you got to make me CEO. And then um, they said, okay. And of course we all know the story that he sold to Amazon for like $2.6 billion. Um, and that, and his book talks a lot about the company culture that he, he, he built. And it was very much, you could tell it was, he, again, he was just pouring himself into the business, the way he treated his friends and people that he interacted with. That's how he treated his employees. Um, and when you think about, when you think about Amazon and Zappos, you, 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 th you think of great customer service. I've heard a lot of great things. I've had a lot of good experiences with Amazon's customer service. They, they really do try to take care of you. But when you go deeper than that and you go, okay, why are they so good? Why do they have such good customer service? It seems like they're taking two completely different strategies. I, I haven't worked for either company, but I've, been, I've read in the news some less than favorable things about Amazon from their employees, you know, stories about them crying at their desk and, and delivery drivers peeing in bottles because they don't have enough time to take a break, things like that. It seems like Amazon's strategy is to just try to squeeze every last bit out of their employees as possible to make the customers happy as possible. Tony Shea's whole strategy was if I make my employees happy, they're going to make my customers happy. And again, it's one of those things where it's the same outcome, you know, great customer service. Um, but if I was going to choose, and, and Amazon owns Zappos now, so it's hard, can't really choose anymore. But if I had to choose between, you know, shopping at Amazon and shopping at Zappos, just based on that, I would choose Zappos um, just because of the, the, the brand and the company culture. Yeah, I think, you know, that I think that gets at an interesting angle, uh, which is, you know, a brand has to stand for something, but it can't stand for everything. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it appears to me, you know, that uh, the Amazon team has chosen massive selection, lowest possible prices, and I'll get it to you faster than anyone else, that that's more important than than certain other values that maybe Zappos would have would have prioritized. And, you know, I think it speaks to, uh, you know, founders, you can't win on every front, you have to choose where you're going to fight. And then that means somewhere you're giving something up, it doesn't maybe maybe to be clear, I'm not being an apologist for Amazon here, if they really aren't giving people breaks, you know, uh, so they have to pee in bottles or whatever. Uh, you know, that's awful. Uh, if that's if that's accurate. Uh, and certainly there are reports that that's that's the case. But, you know, you, you can't make everything incredible at every aspect like there, there are going to be a oppositional values that you might have. And if speed and performance are the primary driver of your business value proposition, which is what America seems to want by buying Amazon Prime and as yeah. a loyal Amazon Prime user, boy, does it nice to get the book the next day after Amen. I order it, <laughs> even though there's a bookstore right down the street with a good friend who owns that business. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I'll buy it there. Uh, you know, it's, it's challenging, right? You have to choose what value you want your brand promise to really be. And then you have to put everything behind it. And, uh, I don't think you can be both the adorable local bookseller and have every book in the world and get it to you the next day. Like those are those are oppositional. 
And uh, so Amazon has sort of staked out one set of, of brand values. Zappos uh, owned company that they own has staked out a different, but somewhat similar, but some, some different aspects. And I think that's important for founders to choose where you'll, where your brand promise will compete and where, where you won't. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that's one, one of the reasons why, um, your, your brand is so important because today you're competing with things like Amazon. Um, you know, we're, like you said, there, there's a bookstore down the street. They might have the book you want, but so many people are, they just want the convenience that they're not willing to just drive to the bookstore or even call them first and just check, hey, do you have this book? A lot of people just go straight to Amazon, and Amazon has done a very good job of of making sure that they are on the top of our minds all the time. That's one thing I like about New Book Co. and, and ISA Ventures. It, you know, you said you only invest in Iowa companies. companies. I love that. I love trying to encourage people to shop local whenever possible. I myself am an Amazon Prime subscriber and I myself, you know, will eat at the chain restaurants from time to time. But I do try um, to support local whenever I can. And so um, it's, it's really, really enjoy the companies that you've started. And I've enjoyed getting know, to know you over the years. I'm really glad you came here. Uh, this has been really awesome. Um, usually the last question I would probably ask a guest is, do you have any advice? I already, I already dropped that question on you. But um, is there any, any final thoughts you'd like to share with, with our listeners? Um, maybe this is illustrating an earlier, earlier point there, but, uh, you know, you, you know, ISA Ventures only invests in Iowa companies and, you know, as a investor, you might say, well, that's dumb. Uh, <laughs> you know, what if the best deal, you know, is in Oklahoma and, you know, so, so that has that decision, uh, that choice of a, of a business that is part of the brand, right. That is very much part of the intention between behind ISA Ventures. Uh, restricted us, and uh, you know it might be oppositional to the perceived belief that you have to find the best deal anywhere in the world. The difference is, is we knew we couldn't compete for deal flow anywhere in the world. I can't be in Chicago with the thousand startups up there and find the best one of those thousand. Like if I'm in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, like that's pretty unlikely that I will be, especially with a twenty, you know, twenty-two million dollar fund, that I'll be able to do that. So we chose that limitation on purpose, and then that sort of affects the whole strategy for how we run a venture fund, right? It means the implication of that is, is we have to be everywhere in Iowa. We have to see every possible great startup in the state of Iowa. And if we miss one, like it's really bad, right? So we have to find those very best diamond in the rough within this these borders that are kind of artificial. So I just think it's an interesting piece that not only do you have to figure out what is the brand that you want your your company to do to be in the minds of your customers and in the in the marketplace, but the choice of that brand decision and maybe what you choose not to do also affects your strategy. Like it's deeply intertwined with what is it you do and you prioritize at, at the work that you do is different because of that choice. So I, I just think it's a, it's a fun topic and uh, you know, brand is, is so, so fundamental to any business success story and excited to see where you take this podcast as you explore more BS like it. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Um, yes, this has been a really great episode, uh, in my opinion, of a load of BS. We, we talked a lot of BS today. Appreciate that, Eric. Um, man, thanks for listening, everybody. Please consider a five-star review if you liked what you heard, which is pretty likely considering our guest today. And we'll catch you guys later. The 
LAS Podcast Network is an independent network of local creators based in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. For more, visit LASPodcastNetwork.com. LAS.